I am thrilled that years ago God gave to Stephen the leadership vision to begin a summer series, a series for eight weeks in the summer to bring in speakers who have impacted our world, made a difference for the cause of Christ because of how they have given their abilities over to God. And we are the richer for it as a church. For any pastor who has a study and has books on those shelves or anyone who's been in seminary and has been encouraged then in the preparation for ministry has read articles and books by Dr. Don Carson. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Carson. He is a research professor right now of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He has been there since 1978. Born and raised in Canada, he received his Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from McGill University and then a Master of Divinity from Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto. And then after serving as pastor, assistant pastor and pastor in Canada, he went on to pursue a Doctor of Philosophy in in New Testament Studies from Cambridge University. He is a, a man of multiple areas of expertise. And in the areas of research, he is an expert in biblical theology, the historical Jesus studies, postmodernism, pluralism, Greek grammar, Johannine theology, Pauline theology, and he is known worldwide for his research, writing, and lectureship dealing with the questions of suffering and evil. He has authored over 60 books. Many of those I even have on my shelf, Stephen has on his and our pastors do. Commentaries, one of my favorite commentaries and all of them that we have on the Gospel of John is the commentary on John by D.A. Carson. My first exposure to him was years ago as a pastor, his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and on and on and on. In a brand new piece that just came out this year, Understanding the Times, New Testament Studies in the 21st Century, It is a book entitled Essays in Honor of D.A. Carson on the occasion of his 65th birthday. I wasn't about to tell you how old he was, but there it is on the cover of the book, all right? But friends of his have compiled this feshrift in dedication to him. Andreas Kostenberger, a student of his and a friend, has written the last chapter on a biography of D.A. Carson. And in that portion, Andreas writes this, Dr. Carson, for all his scholarly writings, is first of all a minister of the gospel. He is a gospel-centered man, not a theoretician. It appears that academia has not mastered him. He has mastered academia. Why then is Dr. Carson so deeply involved in scholarship? Dr. Carson believes that people are built up by faithful exposition of the scriptures and the defense of the gospel. In the introduction to that study, Andreas writes this, While many know Dr. Carson for his mind and his impressive scholarly writings, fewer people know the heart that produces those works. It is especially obvious in How Long, O Lord, Reflections on Suffering and Evil. Though Dr. Carson is a very private person, his friends attest to his devotion to family. And by the way, His wife, Joy, and Dr. Carson reside in Libertyville, Illinois. They have two children. And with that, we read, the intensity of his belief is evident in his autobiographical section of How Long, O Lord, where Dr. Carson writes, and I'm quoting Andreas now, quote, 
I would rather die than end up unfaithful to my wife, Carson says. I would rather die than deny by a profligate life what I have taught in my books. Dr. Carson goes on to say, I would rather die than deny or disown the gospel. That was made most clear in a conversation he had with Dr. Tim Keller, author of the book, Reason for God, in 2002. Dr. Carson and Keller were walking the streets of Manhattan And it gripped their hearts that people ought to be permeated with the gospel through and through in every area of their life and in all their ethics and in all their dealings in society. And so the two of them were contemplating, how can we spread that word? And they formed something with 40 other pastors that's now grown to a group of over 50 pastors that spearhead that. But Dr. Carson and Dr. Keller head up a group known as the Gospel Coalition. It's met three times, the last meeting where they met then in, in a national meeting that had over 7,000 attendees. You can go online today, and I'd encourage you to look at a resource that would be most helpful to each of us. It's entitled uh, thegospelcoalition.org. Right now it receives about 2 million hits a month, making a profound impact for the gospel for Jesus Christ. Tremendous privilege today to welcome to the pulpit, and would you help give a colonial welcome to Dr. Don Carson. It's a great honor for me to join you here at Colonial in North Carolina. Now, if you live long enough, you will get kicked in the teeth. The only people who don't get kicked in the teeth are those who die before it happens. (laughs) If you live long enough, you'll be bereaved, or you'll come down with cancer, or you'll suffer the infirmities of old age. You'll lose your health, your athletic ability, maybe your mind. This is a damned world. And therefore, it behooves Christians to try to set in place in their minds and habits of heart what the Bible says our response and evaluation and way of living ought to be in the light of these kinds of things. Those things are coming. How should we think about these things? How should we prepare for them? A number of years ago, I knew a a man born in Britain, an Englishman, who went to a small Bible college. He felt called of God to the ministry. And upon graduation, he became pastor of a a Baptist church in England. He was quite gifted. He was uh, good at speaking, good at counseling. And uh, numbers of people were converted. The church began to grow. Sadly, however, he became involved in an adulterous relationship, and uh, he had to resign, and he disappeared. In fact, he emigrated to Canada, which is where I met him. At the seminary I was then attending in Toronto, he became a student there. No one knew his background at that time. We graduated about the same time. I moved to British Columbia to serve in a church out there. and He moved into the wilds of Ontario and became pastor of a church. And through the perennial ecclesiastical grapevine, I heard that his church was flourishing. People were being converted, and, and uh, there was remarkable growth and encouragement. And then, sadly, I heard that he became involved in an adulterous relationship. He was forced to resign. Terrible pain in the church. Disappeared. More years went by. I moved to Europe for quite a few years. Then I moved back to uh, the west coast of Canada. And then eventually I moved down to the United States. When I got to Chicago, 
to teach at Trinity, where I am now, the administration asked me, since you don't know anybody in this area particularly, or you don't have any links to local churches yet, would you mind helping out by serving in a nearby church? They've, they've recently gone through some hard times. They had a, a fine pastor. Um, he seemed very capable. The church was growing. People were being converted. But unfortunately, he got caught up in an adulterous relationship, and now the church is in a bit of trauma. Would you mind helping there? You guessed it. Same chap. Round three. And if then some years later you talk to him in Ohio, where he was at that point selling computer parts, and said to him, what on earth happened? I mean, three times around, didn't you learn anything? I mean, the damage you've done. What, what, what was going on in your head? He would reply, God says, there has no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I wasn't able to bear it, so God is a liar. And he turns and walks away. That's one British friend. Let me tell you about another British friend. In his case, I'll tell you his name. His name is Norman Anderson. He's gone to be with the Lord now, an old man, when he died. He married a young woman. He, he was at Cambridge University. He married a young woman by the name of Pat, and they went out as missionaries eventually to um, Egypt, where he learned fluent Arabic and served quite effectively before World War II. So effectively, in fact, that during World War II, he was used by counterintelligence because he knew the language so well and the customs and the style and so on. After the war, he returned to England, where eventually he pursued an academic career and uh, founded the Oriental Institute at London University, was knighted by the Queen, and was a layman in his church and served wondrously well, doing all kinds of evangelism and other things. Uh, he had three children. The first one, a girl, became a medical missionary to Africa. And in the rebellion of 1959, in which the Belgian Congo became independent, she was gang-raped. She was furloughed home and recovering from this and picking up a bit more medicine before wanting to go back to Africa. She tripped, fell down some stairs, knocked herself out, and drowned in her own spittle. The second child, also a girl, was killed in circumstances scarcely less bizarre. The third child was a boy. His name was Hugh. And uh, our paths intersected in 1972 when I first went to Cambridge to do graduate work. He was an undergraduate. He died of cancer at the age of 21, cancer of the brain. Some years later, Norman's wife, Pat, began to show the signs of dementia. She had full-blown Alzheimer's. And not once, not once in the decades I knew Norman, not once did I ever hear him criticize God or slink into bitterness or self-pity, but his life was full of gratitude and thanksgiving and adoration of God for his goodness. Now, what's the difference between those two Brits? One that blames God for everything and the other one that trusts him and says, as it were with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What's the difference? That answer is probably nowhere more fully surveyed than in James chapter 1, the passage to which I now direct you. 
James chapter 1, verses 12 to 25. James 1, 12 to 25. I want to read these verses to you. James 1, 12, listen to what Holy Scripture says. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because... Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This is the word of the Lord. So how do you distinguish between two Brits, or more generically, between a person who on the one hand succumbs into self-pity and blaming God and nurtured bitterness, and on the other hand, someone who is full of adoration and praise and quiet, steadfast, persevering faith? Four things. Number one, when you are struggling under trial, remember the Christian's goals. When you are struggling under trial, remember the Christian's goals. Verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So one of the goals is this crown of life. But before we unpack that, we should remember that verse 12 is actually picking up something that James said just a few verses earlier in verses 2, 3, and 4, where he introduces the matter of trials for the first time. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Why consider such things pure joy? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So, putting these verses together, there are two reasons why we should be grateful under trial. One is, verses 2 to 4, one is we recognize that trial forces us to put down deeper roots in our faith. We learn something of perseverance. 
and perseverance makes us mature. Now, we've all met Christians, sometimes baby Christians, sometimes older Christians who have never just grown up. And every time some little thing happens in their lives, or even some bigger thing, then they are awash in doubt and unbelief and why me and self-pity and bitterness. You see horrible stuff. There's no end of it. And we think of them as immature. But if you're a serious Christian, then one of the things you want to do is grow up in your faith, don't you? Don't you want to be mature in your faith? Do you want to be a baby Christian all your life? So if one of your goals as a Christian is to become mature, then you must recognize that one of the ways that God gets you there is precisely through trials. The trials force you to put down deeper roots. The trials enable you to persevere. And the perseverance itself teaches you a little more about maturity. And then there's a second goal that a Christian has. We're told about it in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. In other words, Christians are not going through life with the sole aim of simply avoiding as much suffering as possible. We have as a goal perseverance and maturity. We also have as a goal what James here calls the crown of life, life at its most alluring best, resurrection existence, the crown of life in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. It's what is referred to in Revelation 2.10. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life, the culmination of life, the consummation of life, life at its best. And we live in the light of eternity. So we're prepared not to evaluate everything purely in terms of how much suffering we can avoid now. We fully recognize that things will look different 50 billion years from now. And what we want even now is this crown of life. We want to hear the master's, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into your master's happiness. Now, there are some Christians here who are troubled a bit by this language since it, it, it sounds as if it's simply a matter of rewards, doesn't it? Suffer now, get rewarded later. But we need to think clearly about what rewards look like in the Bible. One of the best illustrations I know comes from the pen of C.S. Lewis. He describes two men. The first goes to the red light district of town. He wants a woman. He pays his money, and he has his reward. The second woos a young woman with courtesy and respect and dignity. He earns her trust, her affection, her love, and that of her entire family. And in the fullness of time, it's a wonderful wedding. They're happily married. He has his reward. What's the difference? The difference, Lewis says, is that in the first case, the reward and the payment are so incommensurate that the transaction is obscene. In the second case, the reward is simply the culmination of the relationship. 
That's what Christian rewards are like. They're the culmination of a relationship itself grounded and sustained in grace and the goodness of God. So we persevere in this grace. We persevere in this faith. We persevere in this way. And in due course, we already have life, but in due course, we receive the crown of life, life at its consummate best. Notice well that the text says this crown of life is is given to, to certain people. The crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him, verse 12. A pastor friend of mine told me that some years ago, he took the funeral of an elderly woman in the congregation. She had been married to her husband for 63 years. And at the graveside, her grieving husband said, I suppose God has more things for me to do. Elsewise, he not taken me as well. And my pastor friend put an arm around his shoulder and said, My dear brother, God has nothing more for you to do except to love him still. You see, our our self-identity is not finally bound up with doing, doing, doing but first and foremost bound up in this relationship with the living God. And this crown of life the Lord has promised to those who love him still. Do you see? Now, when I was an undergraduate at McGill University studying chemistry many moons ago, we had an expositor come to our campus, McGill Christian Fellowship, and... um, and speak on James for a number of weeks. And in his opening address, he, he, he started off with James 1. And of course, in those days, in the 60s, everybody was reading the King James Version. So I learned verse 2 this way. Count it all joy, brethren, when ye fall into diverse temptations. And a group of us on the campus decided we should take this seriously. There's the word of God. So we, we, we covenanted together that any time we heard one another whining or complaining, we would remind one another of this verse. So you can guess what happened. The next day, somebody wandered onto the campus and started grousing about a calculus exam that was coming up at 10 o'clock. And one of the brothers smirked and said, Count it all joy, my brother, when ye fall into diverse temptations. One for me. And somebody else came onto the campus complaining that money was a little tight, didn't know where the next term's payment was coming from. Count it all joy, brother, when you fall into diverse temptations. Another one for me. It it, it wasn't really helping. It was sort of a spiritual one-upmanship game. But in the mercy of God, in due course, it came to be a serious, loving thing whereby we reminded ourselves of this counsel from God himself. And do you know what happened? Complaints virtually disappeared. Initially, because you didn't want to get trumped by the next guy who would quote this verse at you. But on the other hand, in due course, we could see that it made sense. Our group came to be characterized by much more than grousing, much more rather by praise. And we saw more converts in our group that year than in the other three years at McGill combined. Listen, when you are struggling under trial, remember the Christian's goals. If your entire fixation is on the trials themselves, you're not seeing clearly. 
When you are struggling under trial, remember the Christian's goals. Number two, when you confess God's sovereignty, do not misunderstand God's motives. When you confess God's sovereignty, do not misunderstand God's motives. If you're a Christian at all, you confess God's sovereignty. And so when bad things happen, you think in some fashion or another, directly or indirectly, by whatever secondary causalities, whatever, God is still behind this. This wouldn't happen unless God at very least sanctioned it in some sense. God, God is sovereign over this. And therefore, why is he doing it? It's not fair. It's uncomfortable. It's suffering. It's, it's, it's tearful. It's, it's painful. Why should God be doing this? But these next verses tell us When you confess God's sovereignty, do not misunderstand God's motives. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Now, that line is actually a bit hard to translate, partly because in Greek, temptation and trial are exactly the same word. And which is meant really depends entirely on the context. If I had to paraphrase the first line of verse 13, I would put it this way. If you are tempted by such trials, do not say God is tempting me. That is, you will face some trials, but then do not think that God is trying to crush you. Do not think that God is tempting you towards evil. Why not? After all, God does test people in the sense that he purposely brings them into situations where their willingness to obey him is tested. Thus, in Genesis 22, for example, in the matter of the offering of Isaac, the text says explicitly, God tested Abraham. Or again, in 2 Chronicles 32, God tests King Hezekiah. But although God may test us to prove his servants' faith or to lower their pride, or to foster their endurance, he never does so to induce them to sin. He never does so to destroy their faith. It it, it is not as if he is chuckling in the dark shadows up there saying, (laughs) I'll destroy them this time. Did you see? But that is sometimes the way we almost think of God acting when we are facing trial, is it not? We confess God's sovereignty and then ascribe the meanest of motives to him. But this text says, when facing such trials and tempted by such trials, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That is to say, temptation is an impelling towards sin. It's the impulsion to sin. And God has no impulsion to sin. He's he's never impelled towards sin. So why should you think that he has the slightest interest in impelling you to sin? It's ridiculous to think of God in those terms. It's ascribing the crudest possible motives to God. God isn't like that. In fact, you've got to understand that however complex the issues of God's sovereignty, however mysterious they sometimes are when you probe in philosophical categories the meanings of of contingency and secondary causality and all of those kinds of things that, that, that philosophers talk about, at the end of the day, sin has a quite different origin. What do we read in verses 14 and 15? Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The language is from fishing. The words are fishing images. There's a lure. There's a juicy worm, something. And we go after it and go after it, grab onto it and get hooked. 
And the language in the next verse is more grotesque yet. It's meant to be pretty shocking. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So the mother is desire, gives birth to the child, which is sin. And sin, full grown, is nothing but death. Gives birth to death. This is shocking language, to be full grown and stillborn. That's what sin is like. It's horrendous. So we feel the attraction of sin, whether because of our sinful nature from within or because of things that attract us from the outside, and we indulge. We do it once and then again and then again and then again, whether in words of of cruelty, in in motives, in, in, in sins of omission or sins of commission, we do it again and again. It becomes, it becomes a habit. And then a habit becomes a character until finally, as Spurgeon puts it, we have our masters in worthlessness and our doctorate in damnation. And then we blame God. No, no, none of that will do. This text says, when you confess God's sovereignty, do not misunderstand God's motives. Then number three, more positively, when you feel abandoned and crushed, do not forget God's goodness. When you feel abandoned and crushed, do not forget God's goodness. Verses 16 to 18. Verse 16 is transitional. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. That is, that bears on what the author has just said and what he's about to say. Don't kid yourself. Don't be deluded. Don't pretend that it's all God's fault from the preceding verses. Don't kid yourself that God is malicious in the following verses. Don't be deceived. The truth of the matter is this, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He's the author of good gifts, and he is immutable. He is always good. Now, there's some strong spotlights up here. I can see my papers very easily. But all of those lights, of course, if something gets in the way, cast certain shadows. So that spotlight up there casts a shadow on this microphone over here. And that spot's casting another shadow here. That spot's casting another shadow here. And that spot's casting another shadow, and so on. And even the heavenly lights, of which God is ultimately the final author. He's the creator. He made them all, the the sun, the moon, the countless stars, the galaxies, on and on and on and on. They all cast their light, and if something stands in their way, they cast their shadows. So our moon goes through its phases precisely because the earth gets in the way of the sun. Do, do, Do you see? That's just the way things are. But God thus is ultimately the author of all light in the sense that he's made absolutely everything. But now we're told he himself does not change like shifting shadows. There is no dark side to God. Those of you of the right generation will know all about Star Wars. And in Star Wars, we deal with the force. The force has a light side and a dark side. As far as I can see, the force is amoral. Not immoral, just amoral. It's very powerful. It can be used for good, it can be used for evil, but which it's used for really depends on you, the individual. You side with the one or side with the other. And there are some people who think that God is like the force. 
He's very powerful, and he can be used for good or used for bad, and it all depends on you. But that's not the way the Bible presents God. The Bible presents God as absolutely sovereign, but as exclusively good. There is no downside to God. He is only and always and exclusively good. Even in judgment, he is good. He is good, good. He is good, 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 good. He is never anything other than good. There is no darkness in him at all. None. Now, I know that that can lead to all kinds of long discussions. Where does the Holocaust come from then? Where was God under, under the, 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 the tsunami? And, and on and on. I've engaged in those sorts of discussions, and if this were another sort of occasion, it would be worth exploring those kinds of things. But from the perspective of the Bible's writers, the sheer goodness of God has to be one of the givens. One of the givens is God's sovereignty. Another of the givens is God's goodness. And then you work out how some of these things develop beyond that. And you want to know the biggest proof that God is good, James says? Do you want to know the biggest, most startling, most convincing bit of evidence? Verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. Now, there are some people who think this expression, he chose to give us birth, means that just as he's the ultimate creator of the stars, so he's the ultimate creator of us. He chose to give us birth. We came into existence because of him. But I don't think that's what it means here at all. That might be true, but it's not the point here. By itself, that wouldn't establish God's goodness either. No, no. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. The question is, what is this word of truth? The expression shows up only five times in the New Testament. And without exception, it always refers to the gospel. This is nowhere clearer, for example, than in Ephesians 1.13, where we read, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So what is verse 18 saying? He chose to give us birth through the gospel. So the birth here must be the new birth. Do, do, do you see? It is what John 3 speaks of when Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus and talks about how you must be born again. It's what Titus is talking about when it mentions this, this regeneration from God. He, he chose to regenerate us. He, he chose to give us the power of his spirit to transform us. He, he not only reconciles us to God, he, he chooses to give us new birth through the gospel. And the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ Jesus supremely on the cross and in his resurrection. The gospel is this grand news about, about how God has come to us in the person of his son, taking on human flesh and then dying not only in the ignominious and barbaric torture of a Roman crucifixion, but in that act, bearing our guilt, facing and enduring the wrath of God so that we might go free, the just dying for the unjust, the righteous, the righteous becoming sin in our place so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange takes place. He takes our sin. We enjoy his righteousness. Our accounts are settled before God. That is the greatest evidence of the love of God because he didn't have to do it. He didn't owe it to us. 
He chose to give us new birth through the gospel. And to this end, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That is the first step toward a new universe, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness where there will be justice and, and peace and no more decay and no more sorrow, no more tear, no more sin, no more greed, no more hate. But we shall love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. And already he's given us new birth on the way to that consummation. He chose to do this through the cross, through the gospel. Do you know what that means? That means that when you go through deep waters, the place to anchor your confidence in the love of God is the cross. Where you cannot imagine what God is doing, you return to the cross. So when you lose a child, when you're vomiting from chemotherapy because the anti-nauseants aren't working, when your marriage is breaking up, when one of your kids is going off the rails, when you've just been informed that the diagnosis is right, you have Alzheimer's, when you've lost your job, where will you anchor your confidence that God is good and that he loves you? Just in your current experience? No, no. In this objective reality, God chose to give us new birth through the cross, through the gospel. You return to the cross again and again, and there you find comfort and assurance again and again. When you feel abandoned and crushed, do not forget God's goodness. And finally, when you hear gospel instruction, do not merely listen to it. When you hear gospel instruction, do not merely listen to it. I'm dealing now with verses 19 to 25. I think that this section is sometimes misunderstood. It's understood merely to be telling you to pay attention to Scripture and obey. And there's an element of that there, but it's more than that. This element of obedience is certainly strong. Verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Yes, there is an emphasis on obedience. But what is the word that James has in mind? Is it simply obey the Bible in generic terms? No, follow the thrust of the argument all the way down. We read in verse 18, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And we've seen good reason for holding that this refers to the gospel. The word of truth is the gospel. And so now the same expression is picked up. My dear brothers and sisters, verse 19, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now this in the context of trials, where we can be quick to speak, quick to become angry, quick to nurture bitterness. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. It becomes a time for repentance, self-examination, confession of sin. Get rid of it all. And the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. Well, in the flow of the argument, that word must be the gospel word. It's the word that has been planted in you. You have been saved by it already. 
Do you see? It is this word that has been planted in you that you are now humbly to accept and submit to. You, you obey the gospel. You humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Oh, in one sense, of course, because it's the gospel, if it's really in you, it, is, it has already saved you. You've passed from death to, 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 to life. But, but this gospel not only sets us up in a right relationship with God, it continues also to transform us, to conform us to Christ. In that sense, it is continuing to save us. Don't you see? Part of our problem is that very often we have thought of the gospel as that which tips us into the kingdom. And then all the life-transforming bits happen afterwards, not from the gospel, but from our discipleship courses. How to be happy though married. 16 ways to bring up teenagers. 40 ways to appreciate the Psalms. And whatever, all these discipleship courses, do you see? So all the gospel does is tip you in. And then after that, you don't need the gospel. If somebody's at the front preaching the gospel, that's for all those sinners out there who still aren't Christians yet. Do you you see? What I need is a discipleship course so that I can be an overcoming Christian. It's simply not the way the language of the New Testament works. All you have to do is read right through the whole New Testament in four or five sittings. Read, Read it quickly and just highlight with a yellow pen every time you come across the word gospel or anything directly related to the gospel. Preach the gospel or the like or the cross and anything that is tightly related to the gospel. And, and then you know what you discover? The gospel is not the little category which tips us in after which all of our discipleship takes over. The gospel is the big category. It's the transforming category. It's the power of God to salvation, that is to wholeness, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. And all of our discipleship categories, which are important, come under the gospel. They're not something that you add on to the gospel. They fall under the gospel. The gospel itself is the power of God to salvation. That's why so many of the ethical arguments in the New Testament work the way they do. For example, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. So forgive one another, that's horizontal in this church, forgive one another, for what reason? As Christ has forgiven you. That's gospel. That's what the gospel is about. The the way you have received forgiveness from God through the cross is precisely what must mandate your forgiveness of one another and your forbearance toward one another in in, in the church. Do, Do you see? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's not that you've become a Christian and now you take a course on marriage. No, 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 no. Don't don't you see, you husbands? Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So we are to love our wives the same way. He loved the church self-sacrificially and for the church's good. That means that husbands are to love their wives self-sacrificially and for their wives' good. Do you see? That's simply gospel obedience. You conform to the gospel. That's what you have received, and that's what you live out in response of faith and obedience to the gospel. Do you see? It's not something extra to the gospel. It is intrinsic to the gospel. And so when you face trials, James says, don't be too quick to speak. Shut up and listen. Human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. Get rid of the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. This gospel word. Think through what the gospel means. Bring it into your life. Absorb it. This gospel which can save you, it transforms you precisely in these trials. 
Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. For the gospel exposes what we are. It shows us what we ought to be. It brings us Christ Jesus. And we cling to the cross not only for the assurance that he loves us, but for all the demonstration of what gospel living looks like. And we are transformed. All of this deeply anchored in God's love for us. So what distinguishes between those two Brits? What distinguishes between what you will do in bitterness and self-pity and lashing out when you face trials of various kinds? Or alternatively, when you walk with humility of mind in quiet trust before the living God, even in the midst of tears and pain, still saying, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What distinguishes those two? When you are struggling under trial, remember the Christian's goals. When you confess God's sovereignty, do not misunderstand God's motives. When you feel abandoned and crushed, do not forget God's goodness. And when you hear gospel instruction, do not merely listen to it. Absorb this gospel word. Let it shape all of your living and thinking. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let us pray. In truth, Lord God, we confess how easily we are snookered by bitterness and doubt draw us back again and again to the cross, not least those here gathered who are themselves walking through deep, deep waters. Assure them afresh of your love for them. Give them a vision of what the Christian's goals are, an ability to assess things in the light of eternity, an eager willingness to return to the cross and be assured of your watch care over them. And for those, Lord God, for whom all of these things still seem alien because they have not known you at all, open their eyes that they may see. There is no possibility of such a stance at all apart from a genuine, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So for all of us, Lord God, we stand before you and we want to cry, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. For Jesus' sake, amen.